I will be presenting um, the conceptual framework of a new research project that I've embarked on. And I really look forward to any comments, questions, and indeed suggestions that you have uh, going forward. It concerns Canada's private refugee sponsorship system uh, that I will now explain to you. So as many of you probably know, from November 15th, from about November 2015 to the end of November 2017, about a two-year period, Canada resettled around 50,000 Syrian refugees. I want to distinguish here, for those of you who don't know, between resettlement of refugees and our asylum, uh, our asylum system. Resettlement is the process by which those who are refugees abroad in some other country, typically outside the country from which they fear persecution, are brought to Canada for resettlement. They enter and acquire permanent resident status immediately and put on the road to citizenship. Those are resettled refugees. I distinguish that from asylum seekers, who are people who on their own initiative show up at a Canadian border or a port of entry, that is to say an airport, for example, and ask for refugee protection. In so doing, they're asking Canada to fulfill its international legal obligations to uh, protect refugees. Right now, I'm talking about only resettled refugees. Now, of the 50,000 Syrian refugees who are resettled over this two-year period, about half were resettled through what is known as the Government Assisted Refugee Program. Of the remainder, about 20% were called privately sponsored refugees, and then another 5% are what are called blended visa office referrals. I have no expectation that you would know or <laughs> remember any of those terms. But let me just say that each of those models provides the following. 12 months of income support, income assistance to the resettled refugee. Access to the usual public services, health, education, and so on, as well as settlement-specific services for immigrants and refugees like English or French as a second language training and various uh, related supports. The difference between the three models uh, government-assisted, or GARS, privately sponsored PSRs, or this blended visa program, is really about who selects or nominates the refugee and who pays for the income assistance. Government-assisted refugees are financially supported by the government. They are also selected by the government, usually or often on referral from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. With privately sponsored refugees, groups of Canadians, called sponsorship groups, can nominate the particular refugees they wish to sponsor. They can also ask for a referral if they don't have anybody in particular that they want to sponsor. Blended, and those people, private sponsors, pay for 100% of the income assistance. Rather than the government paying, the sponsorship group pays. With blended visa cases, the sponsorship group does not name or select the refugees, and they pay 50% of the cost, and the government pays the other 50%. So it's a 50-50 cost sharing for the year. Okay. In all of these cases, government-assisted, GARS, privately sponsored, or blended visa cases, the government still screens the refugees abroad for admissibility, according to health, criminality, security, 
etc. And the government's also responsible for transporting the refugees to Canada. I'm now embarking on an empirical investigation that explores private refugee sponsorship, and here I include those blended visa cases that are in fact 50-50 cost sharing. And I examine this phenomenon from the perspective of Canadian sponsors. No other state in the world among those who resettle refugees, and there are about 22 countries that do it, actually has a system of private sponsorship that Canada has. And that system has attracted considerable interest. Lots of people are out there researching, uh, researching resettled refugees from the perspective of refugees. How are the refugees faring according to the various metrics of integration and settlement? Economic, social, health, education, etc. Lots of, lots of people are looking at that. The research that I'm doing looks exclusively at uh, the sponsors. I'm working with social scientists because I think, frankly, I, I'm a legal scholar and um, I have none of the skills to do an empirical investigation. And so I'm learning from them. And also I'm working with social scientists because although there is some law involved, there's not a lot of law involved in uh, refugee resettlement, and the legal questions are by and large not the most interesting questions in my view to ask. The question that I do ask for purposes of this research is not how does refugee resettlement transform refugees into citizens, but rather I ask how does refugee resettlement remake the citizenship of sponsors? So um, with that in mind, let me just say quickly that our system of public and private resettlement of refugees exists in its present form since 1978 when Canada, unique in the world, actually legislated into existence formal structures for both public and private refugee resettlement. The way it works is that individual Canadians, a minimum of five people, come together to form what is called a sponsorship group. They make a collective undertaking to provide financial assistance for the refugees they sponsor for uh, a 12-month period. And in that period, they not only put up the money, but they do what I'll call kind of a lot of the heavy lifting of settlement and integration work. They're the ones who help get the ID documents in place, help enroll kids in school, find doctors, dentists, uh, try to locate ESL classes, uh, help locate accommodation. Some of you may be involved in these as members of sponsorship groups yourselves, and you'll be uh, familiar with both the wide array of tasks <coughs> and, frankly, the intense time commitment that it involves. Okay? Um, where refugees are publicly sponsored under the government-assisted refugee program, it is uh, professionals in the settlement sector who do the kind of work that I have just described. Okay. Now, the inquiry into private sponsorship that I'm doing is organized along three dimensions, a kind of conceptual framework that I started with, and I will tell you now I am constantly adjusting and revising in accordance with the empirical research that we're doing. So the first, <coughs> first theme or question perhaps that we pose is about motive. Why do people sponsor? Why do they decide to sponsor? Okay. The second <coughs> is mode. And by this I mean, what is distinctive about private resettlement versus the public model? How does this private mode shape, alter the sponsorship dynamic? And the third is effect. How does the experience of sponsorship 
affect sponsors? How does it, in particular, constitute them as active citizens? And here I'm using the idea of sponsorship as a kind of act of citizenship, following Engen Eisen's work and others. Each of these themes is grounded in theoretical literature about hospitality, privatization, the domain of the private, ideas of civic virtue, and, and democratic citizenship. But in order to explore these themes, um, the project employs two main methods to collect empirical data. And the first is a survey that seeks to obtain demographic data about sponsors and information about their motives, uh, their relationship, the relationship of sponsorship groups to the people they sponsor, and equally importantly, the relationship of sponsors to one another. Uh, we also want, we also solicit data about uh, sponsors' own evaluation of their experience. And this survey is ongoing. Um, we've launched it in, we launched it in August, and we're going to close it in about a month. And if any of you are sponsors, please <laughs> fill out the survey. If you don't know how, come see me. I'll, I'll send it to you. The second phase of the research, following the survey will be uh, semi-structured interviews with individual sponsors and other key informants. So with that as a background, let me just move to talking about the themes then of motive, mode, and effect. So the first question, why sponsor refugees? So not since the Indo-Chinese refugee movement of 1979-80, not since that movement inaugurated our contemporary refugee sponsorship system have so many Canadians undertaken private sponsorship. So what was it that sparked in so many Canadians this desire to assist Syrian refugees? And some people might sum it up in a name, Alan Kurdi. And that photo of him washed up on a Turkish beach stunned and horrified people across the globe. And within a day or two, it emerged that Alan had a Canadian aunt, and that prior to Alan's parents' desperate act of loading the family onto a rickety boat in the Mediterranean, the aunt had repeatedly and unsuccessfully entreated the Canadian government to admit relatives to Canada. Now this Canadian connection to Alan Curdy, which is otherwise a random and contingent fact, other children who drowned in the Mediterranean had no such connection to Canada, made the possibility of a different outcome, both imaginable and notionally linked to actions taken or not taken in Canada. So now an image of, of human suffering gone viral can only operate as a kind of shorthand for a more complex analysis of how and why it motivates action and the kind of action it motivates. Importantly, people who might have otherwise written a check to assist Syrian refugees in Turkey, Lebanon, or Jordan instead stepped up to sponsor them for resettlement. And let me add here that money spent delivered to Syria, Jordan, or Lebanon um, for humanitarian relief would assist exponentially more people than the, money, than, um, the number of refugees who benefit from resettlement to Canada. So the question becomes, why reach beyond the boundaries of the nation state to assist strangers in need in this way? More colloquially, one can just put the, the question like this. Um, why should refugee sponsors depart from the maxim charity begins at home? Why would they do this in particular for strangers abroad? So there are many um, sort of ways of coming at this. And I began by approaching it as a question for which cosmopolitanism might have an answer. And I am since moving away from that, in part in response to the kind of data we're getting from the survey. So let me just begin by observing that the history of refugee resettlement in Canada, which of course began long before the refugee existed as a legal subject internationally or domestically, reveals that from about the 19th century onwards, 
diasporic communities have mobilized to assist ethnic, religion, or personal kin to flee oppression, war, and persecution. So perceived affinity to somebody far away based on some notion of identity, a common identity, is obviously an important driver for action. And in terms of perceived connection to refugees, it's interesting to note how other categories um, that heighten vulnerability to persecution, such as LGBTQ identity, for example, or personal history as an immigrant or refugee, may and in fact seem to have supplemented these traditional bases of eth common ethnicity, national origin, or religion as a basis for connection that people respond to. You know, some people say, why did you step up? Some people, you know, say, as an LGBTQ person, I know that there are Syrians abroad in that situation. I feel it's important to act. So that's a way of talking about perceived connection that transcends borders and the ways in which ideas of identity are, of course, expandable. The, the list is, is not closed. In addition to that idea of some notion of connection, the practice of hospitality resonates deeply in the sacred texts of many uh, religions that enjoin us to welcome the stranger, where being a stranger is, in fact, what makes it important. Now, indeed, the spiritual roots of hospitality are particularly salient in refugee resettlement because of the crucial role played by faith-based or organizations in promoting and sustaining private refugee sponsorship in Canada. Here, under the system we now have, um, sponsorship agreement holders are these institutional repeat players in private sponsorship. Okay, they are people, they are organizations that have participated in private sponsorship for so long that the government has a relationship with them, and in a sense there's an expedited process because these sponsorship agreement holders are, have been doing it for so long, the government trusts them, they know how it's done. About 70% of these organizations are faith-based, and that says something about the historical roots. And although it's not universally the case, the main faith-based organizations that have been the pillars of private sponsorship do not seek or prefer refugees of the same faith and they disavow any intention to proselytize through sponsorship. Okay, and religious leaders who champion resettlement have sometimes explained this non-sectarian approach with the following credo. We don't do it because of who they are. We do it because of who we are. Okay, in other words, what it means to be a good Christian or a good Jew or a good Muslim is to welcome the stranger who may not, and indeed probably is not, a co-religionist. Now an interesting question that arises in my present research concerns the mutability of that idea from the spiritual to the nationalist realm. Um, when Justin Trudeau addressed the United Nations General, Assem General Assembly in, early in 2016, he talked about Canada's resettlement undertaking as an expression of national character in using the following kind of maple syrupy line. We are Canadian. We are here to help. Now, <laughs> in so stating, um, he tacitly appeals, though, to a notion that part of what it means in Canada to be a good citizen is to reach out and welcome those who are not. <clears throat> Kimlicka and Walker contend that a globalist orientation may actually be nurtured by the ethical demands generated by particular nationalist attachments. Right? So, really, you know, but so. Kimlicka and Walker proposed that sometimes people become good citizens of the world because this is part of it, what it means to be a good Canadian. Being Canadian motivates being or becoming more cosmopolitan in this sense. That is, in the sense of reaching beyond common bonds of kinship or nationality to, um, to aid the other. So, borrowing, really, borrowing from uh, 
Apia, who cosmopolitan philosopher, um, Kimlicka and Walker describe this phenomenon, this mediation, as rooted cosmopolitanism. That is, you mediate the contradiction between the universalism of the human with the exclusionary particularism of the citizen. And so Trudeau's speech, in a sense, evokes citizenship in two ways, right? First, by describing resettlement as incorporation of newcomers into the citizenry. And so you're talking about a fairly open concept of citizenship, one which, it, though membership itself is exclusionary, nevertheless, it's a relatively open and welcoming um, approach to citizenship. So resettlement is incorporation of newcomers into the citizenry and not simply a mechanism for providing temporary refuge. Okay? And secondly, by inviting the audience here to draw a link between Canadian citizenship and some kind of global humanitarian commitment. Okay. So moving away from that for a moment. Many sponsors of refugees don't adhere to any faith that enjoins, you know, that, that deals with this sort of duty to welcome the stranger. And even if they do adhere to a faith, they may understand their reasons for sponsorship in secular terms and non-nationalist terms. So it is the case that most refugee sponsors do not share any particularized identity characteristic with the people they sponsor. Um, there's a little more nuance I could give to that, but I'll just make that general point right now. Now, so the combination of an increasingly secularized society and the diversification of the origins of refugees, so that most sponsors aren't connected by nationality, ethnicity, etc., to the refugees they sponsor, really invites us to think harder about motives for sponsorship that are both secular and non-specific, non-particular. Now, in the absence of a divine authority guiding us toward a spiritual obligation to help the other, and absent shared characteristics of identity that makes refugees like us in some particular way, why reach beyond the boundaries of the nation to assist strangers in need? Now, this is where, again, various theories of cosmopolitanism seek to provide an account, a normative account of moral obligation that transcends our proximate attachments, um, and where rooted cosmopolitanism you know, enters into the frame. You know, the, now, I don't align myself, at least at present, with any particular version of cosmopolitanism, and I, but I'm interested in approaching it as a kind of empirical puzzle. Now, the reasons for sponsoring Syrian refugees are, are surely diverse. Returning to the image of Alan Kurdi, then, we are all aware of the power of children to awaken deeply felt emotion. Right? After months of exposure to reportage on the plight of Syrian refugees, the image of Alan Kurdi made worse by the Canadian connection I just described, seemed to suddenly shrink the moral distance between <coughs> him and us as Canadians to the length of his body. It was no longer just a Middle East problem or even a European problem. The incontestable innocence of children is an important element. And the markers of culture, ethnicity, and even race, those, those markers that are used to interpose strangeness between us and them are read as less conspicuous on the bodies of children than on adults. So concern for children is, is universal. <coughs> but we're also aware, I think, of how images of children can be instrumentalized, often reluctantly, by refugee advocates and NGOs in order to attract desperately needed funds for humanitarian relief. And this appeal to affect, to emotion, through the presentation of the innocent child often entails depoliticizing and decontextualizing the causes of conflict and forced migration. The response to suffering that this produces, then, may be linked less to a sense of implication in the causes of human suffering than to the rec simple recognition of our capacity to alleviate it. 
We're not to blame for Alan Kurdi's death on this view or for the plight of refugees more generally. But we do possess the means to help, and so we should. Indeed, this perceived remoteness from the sources or causes of suffering can sometimes tidy up the moral landscape within which we choose to act or not. And here I just want to raise simply the point that non-Indigenous Canadians can understand themselves as innocent in respect of the plight of refugees abroad, Syrians in particular, in a way that is just not available to them, to us, in respect of Indigenous people. And so ironically, there are ways in which distance makes it easier to act, contrary to the idea that we are more responsive when our attachment is more proximate. So this in turn, this model though, or this potential motive, um, inclines toward a depiction of refugee sponsorship as a kind of apolitical humanitarian response. Private sponsorship as charity. Now others, however, may situate refugee sponsorship within a wider set of political commitments and practices, whether to human rights generally, to social justice, or to migrants and refugees interna or international solidarity. And in this kind of idea may manifest in a sense of personal or national enmeshment, if that's a word, in the forces that generate refugee flows from Syria and a concomitant sense of obligation to contribute constructively through refugee resettlement. And this can range from a rather narrower idea. So for example, there's a way in which the United States resettled thousands of Vietnamese because of a sense of direct engagement and responsibility in the, in the creation of conditions that produce them. The same might be said of Canada in respect to Kosovars. We were participants in the NATO bombing. But there is also available a more general sense of shared responsibility or implication in the international organization of power and the structures and the history that creates a collective sense of obligation and responsibility to act. Um, in either case, okay, this ethical commitment that I'm describing here, this motive, um, may be more self-consciously political and therefore tilted toward an ideal of justice more than charity. Um, let me finish this uh, discussion of motivation uh, with two quick points and then I'm going to move on. First, um, refugee resettlement as a process of enrolling refugees into citizenship it engages ideas of hospitality, which in turn, as I said, is rooted both in, spirit, in spiritual and in the cosmopolitan secular um, normative accounts. But the the, what is distinctive, I think, about um, refugee resettlement or private sponsorship as a mechanism of hospitality is that it is a version of hospitality that seeks to obviate itself. And what I mean by that is if you look back to kind of, I don't know, you know, Kantian notions of hospitality, there's a duty to welcome the stranger, but it was always temporary. Right? But the end to which private sponsorship aspires is that the stranger will become a fellow citizen and thus one who is no longer, need, no longer needs or indeed is owed hospitality. Right? You don't extend hospitality to one who is a fellow member. So it is a form of hospitality that seeks to negate itself in that respect, or obviate itself. Um, maybe I'll just get the second point, just for reasons of time, and move on. Because I want to say um, a few words about privatization here, or the realm of the private. 
So it's easy to understand private sponsorship within the realm of the private insofar as individuals are putting up the money as opposed to the state. Um, and a standard critique of what we view as privatization is that it transfers to the private sphere what is a quintessentially public responsibility, namely the admission of non-citizens and their transformation into citizens. Uh, admission of refugees and transformation into citizens. And one might have a concern that this private sponsorship in a sense alleviates the state from its public responsibilities. I only want to say briefly that the history of refugee resettlement complicates that. Because in a sense, the history of, of immigration settlement, including refugee resettlement and integration, is largely a story of private actors doing the work in ways that were then eventually taken up or financially subsidized by government. Secondly, private sponsorship could never exist without extensive government intervention, without the legislative framework that creates it. Right? So it's always already involved. It is always much more what I'll call here a kind of public-private partnership, where the private is not a private corporation that is profit-seeking, but rather a self-organized civil society group, if you can call it, an itty-bitty NGO, uh, with other regarding purposes. Okay. And so. <laughs> The last concern, though, that arises very much in Canada is that whatever the virtues of private sponsorship, it should never displace the existing regime of public sponsorship. We can support private sponsorship and say that it is not displacing the public because there is a public model. And over time, the relative rates of resettlement are split 50-50. More or less half come as publicly as government-assisted refugees more or less half come as private, including this blended visa situation, which is complicated, but I won't raise it here. Um, but there's a level of artifice to that, right? Because you, you can never know if the private is displacing the public, because after all, we could all, you know, Canada could always bring in more government-assisted refugees. Right? So you can never really calculate that. But it becomes important when you think about the extent to which, first of all, this model is transportable, should be exported, and so on. And also, for people who think, well, you know, a, a government, the, in fact, the previous government, I would say, was both hostile to refugees generally, but such resettlement as there was should be primarily private. But think about the motivation that people would have. Would people be motivated to step up and privately sponsored if the state wasn't doing it at all, right? It might be like, you know, I don't want to be complicit in doing a job that the state ought to be doing. So if this is a way of the state completely avoiding it, I don't want to participate. So there's a way in which the presence of a purely public model is critical, I think, to sustaining the viability of any kind of private model. Now, I want to sort of pivot in talking about the realm of the private in a slightly different direction. And that is to talk about a different way in which private resettlement is private. And here I want to relate it to the family. Private resettlement of refugees bears a resemblance to another mode of immigration that we know as family class sponsorship. Family in Canada, family, people in Canada can sponsor their close, uh, immediate family from another country okay, by giving an undertaking of, not of direct financial support, but they give an undertaking that if the family member they bring in ever goes on social assistance, the sponsor will have to reimburse. The bottom line is the similar idea of financial responsibility. And so you can see that there's a kind of mimicking of private sponsorship of refugees and family class sponsorship. I also think at a deeper level, the, the institution of private refugee sponsorship 
anticipates a relationship between private sponsors and refugees that is personal, immediate, and characterized by what I'll call the kind of affect, the emotion, and the partiality that we associate with kinship. Okay. Let me just contrast right, that um, private sponsors and those who work in the settlement sector. Let's say settlement professionals must adopt a posture of impartiality and equal commitment toward all the government-assisted refugees they serve. Right? That's a professional responsibility, and in a sense, we wouldn't expect it to be otherwise. They have to treat all of the people that they serve, all of their clients, equitably, impartially, equally, if you will. Private sponsors are expected to feel a unique commitment to the particular refugee family, they, refugee family they sponsor. They're avowedly partial. Right? They expend their considerable social capital in assisting their family and the possessive here is you know, frequently used and not, in a sense, accidental. Their family, our family, my family, in locating housing, healthcare, education, and employment, and in acculturating to Canada. And it's this personal relationship, accompanied by this transfer of social capital from sponsors to refugees, that some people credit with the relatively successful integration outcomes of privately sponsored refugees compared to government-assisted refugees. I'm not gonna pursue that. I'm not sure the data supports that idea that there is a significant difference in outcome. I'm mentioning it because it's widely assumed, but it's not completely uh, apparent. So here, of course, we know that familial relationships offer a lot, but there are also costs associated with it. There are power dynamics and differentials that we know are in play in family, right? And these are obviously compounded, well, compounded. They are compounded in the present in, in private sponsorship because, in a literal sense, the folks aren't family, and they are divided by differences of culture, often racialization, religion, socioeconomic status, clearly immigration status, and so on. There are so many gradients of difference and of power between sponsors and the refugees they sponsor that they complicate further what we know to already be complicated dynamics that we associate with kinship, both positive, constructive, supportive, nurturing ones, and potentially problematic ones. And just again, for reasons of time, I won't dwell on it, but I hope the general point is clear. Um, I will highlight one more dimension of family that's crucial in respect of private sponsorship. And it is this. It is what's called the echo effect. <coughs> Private sponsors may indeed um, reach out and sponsor people who are not previously known to them and with whom they have no previous connection. But one of the things that happens very quickly in many sponsorship scenarios is that private sponsors are, once a family is settled and stable, one of the first things they want to do, completely understandably, is bring over extended family members, bring over the ones who are left behind. And what they often do is approach the sponsorship group to, or a, another sponsorship group to bring over those extended family members. Because typically, the refugee family itself is not in a financial situation that they could contribute financially to a sponsorship group themselves. And the extended family are not within the kinship, that small kinship network that counts for purposes of family class sponsorship. So what you end up with then is that private sponsorship very quickly devolves, devolves becomes 
a kind of extended family reunification scheme. This creates really challenging normative policy implications for prioritization, the advantages of kinship, and in some ways what it does is it kind of replicates the kind of moral policy ethical dilemmas that go into devising any immigration system. Who are you going, who are you going to prioritize? Is it going to be people who already have relatives here? You know, is it because we value family and the importance of uniting family? Is it going to be who is most needy? It's going to be those who offer the most economically. Some of those challenges then get reproduced in microcosm with the so-called echo effect in sponsor refugee sponsorship. So lastly, um, I want to turn to, in a sense, what animated the question that I posed to you. What about the remaking of sponsorship of those who sponsor? So here I draw on ideas of active citizenship. Here I'm not talking about the legal status of citizenship, but rather the no notion of active engaged citizens and what that means. Right? So the idea of active citizenship draws on ideals of, kind of civic republicanism. Right? The citizen who participates in and contributes to the public life of the community exhibits the civic virtue of, of active as opposed to passive citizenship. Scholars of social cohesion and democratic citizenship often argue that trust, empathy, solidarity are vital to sustaining a flourishing democracy in the context of highly diverse societies, any society really. And these sentiments of solidarity, trust, empathy are fostered and nurtured by practices of civic engagement. And when, so the idea is when people come together to plan and implement a shared project of public value, they build community and social solidarity. Now historically, periods of crisis, war, national, you know, war, natural disasters and so on, can often unite the citizenry and incite them to pool their energies into acts of self-sacrifice and collective action often against a hostile other. Private refugee sponsorship has mobilized thousands of Canadians to gather together, form groups, create networks, and to commit to a cooperative endeavor, not in the service of defeating the other, but in the service of embracing the other. Um, and part of what my research is, uh, I hope to do, is really explore how this process unfolds among people with distinctly different socioeconomic, racial, ethnic, religious, and cultural backgrounds, both within sponsorship groups and between sponsors and refugees. And it, just sit, let me say by shorthand, in no way do I want to romanticize uh, all the relationships as happy families. There are real challenges, real problems that develop. Um, it's, not all, it's not easy. It's usually not easy. Right? And so the point here is not to tell a kind of romantic, happy story it is to sort of delve into it and look both at what the, how those relationships are formed, what the dynamics of them are, not just between sponsors and refugees, but also within sponsorship groups. How do they come together? How do they form? How do they govern themselves? Because the tensions that emerge between sponsorship groups and refugees also are played out as tensions within sponsorship groups. So uh, Harry Boyd, uh, talks about the value of public work as a mode of active citizenship. And in some ways, um, we might say that a private sponsorship group is like a little civil society organization that is formed to undertake a specific, time-limited public work of enduring value, the incorporation of new citizens. Where that places sponsors, are they in relation to the state and to refugees, I think is an important question. Right? Are they agents of the state? 
Are they doing the state's work? Do they understand themselves as that way, in that way? Or are they um, cushions between a state and the refugees? Do they mediate? How do they understand their role, I think, is, is raises a series of important questions. But I'm going to close on the question of politicization. So on my most optimistic version of this, which remains to be tested, um, privatization is often um, sort of described as having a depoliticizing effect, right? You take something from the realm of public contestation and you revert it to the realm of the private and the market. But private refugee sponsorship can disrupt, potentially, settled expectations about that. Um, and here, let me, to explain why, let me just uh, give you a little anecdote. So on a Wednesday night in March 2016, I attended uh, a meeting of about 300 people gathered in a Toronto church hall to uh, meet with a federal member of parliament. Those in attendance were mainly middle-aged and middle class, like me. Um, and the audience was clearly disgruntled. Some of them even heckled the MP when he tried to speak. And those kinds of meetings aren't uncommon, of course. But the pe what was interesting about this meeting is it wasn't the usual kind of complaint about the lack of public services or a NIMBY argument about not wanting a you know, halfway house in their community. The people were agitated about refugees, not about keeping them out, but about how slow their arrival was. And the, they complained that the federal government wasn't doing enough to expedite the screening, processing, and transporting of Syrian refugees to Canada. They were among the thousands of Canadians who'd formed these groups. They had raised money. They had even rented apartments. Some of those were lying vacant. They were prepared. Now they were waiting impatiently for the Canadian government to do its job so they could begin doing theirs. Okay? So hundreds of private sponsors were resolutely asserting an entitlement to make demands on government because after all, they're putting up the money and doing the heavy lifting. So the political subject position of these private sponsors emerged not in spite of privatization, but because of it. They were using their political voice to advance the interests of the voiceless and demanding from elected officials that they do more to protect refugees. Okay? And this strikes me as a provocative act of citizenship at a time when most voices around the world are raised far more frequently and vehemently in opposition to the arrival of refugees. So now, the actual numbers, as I said at the beginning, of refugees resettled in Canada, or I didn't say, but I'll tell you now, they're trivial in comparison to the number of refugees around the world. They're inconsequential in comparison to the need. As I said before, the money spent on resettlement would go much further if it was sent as humanitarian relief. But at a time when the political will in wealthy states to commit to a just distribution of responsibility toward refugees is weak, or fading, or absent, it seems important to me to learn more about how and why ordinary citizens might mobilize themselves and their government for and not against refugees. And so, for this reason, I think, you know, people talk a lot about whether refugee resettlement is good for refugees and whether refugees are good for Canada. By focusing on sponsors, I want to also supplement that by asking whether refugees are good for Canadians and for the building of community in that sense, good for the citizenship of Canadians, and whether the potential politicization through private sponsorship can also be good for refugees in a way that we don't see uh, much of in the world at present. So with that, thank you.